Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Alexi Della Derriere, Head of International Developed Markets Equity for Goldman Sachs Asset Management's Fundamental Equity Team. Now our conversation today will focus in part on how ESG performance is faring here in 2021 relative to the strong engagement witnessed during 2020, some notable net zero commitments from world leaders, further updates on the regulatory environment, and more. So, Amantia, Alexi, it's great to be with you both today on the podcast and very much looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite, Dan. Absolutely. So, Amantia, to get things started, I know if we think back to 2020, we saw record numbers of asset flows into sustainable investing along with strong market performance. So, Amantia, what is your view on ESG performance this year, 2021, relative to what we saw in 2020? And what are you most closely keeping an eye on right now, Amantia? Thanks, Ben. Truly, um, 2020 was in many ways a watershed moment for sustainable investing as we saw uh, record-breaking um, assets flowing into ESG and sustainable strategies and also overall uh, performance across different asset classes of, of sustainable investing strategies. And now, you know, if we look at uh, end of q um, in, in, we're, we're seeing a similar pattern with assets continuously going towards ESG or sustainable investing funds as well, which, you know, this in context of also the, the, the cyclical rotation that we're experiencing in markets overall, as well as the, the, the reflation trades that we're experiencing, are raising questions and, and have lead us to continue to keep an eye around, uh, you know, on the question of can sustainable investing strategies still perform or is this something that is more uh, of a cyclical nature to do with a very specific market environment? So to look at this, uh, the first thing that, that we note and we emphasize is that sustainable investing strategies are not monolithic. There's no such thing as, you know, one ESG or one type of sustainable investing strategy. And as such, we would expect differentiated performance across different types of these strategies, uh, differences across regions, as well as, you know, differences across time and market cycles. And this is why overall our headline recommendation when it comes to sustainable investing is similar to recommendations across other uh, forms of traditional investing as well, which is um, we we suggest uh, diversifying across the different sustainable investing approaches. And we think that these types of diversified portfolios over time should return comparable uh, performance uh, to to their traditional equivalents or, or, you know, non-ESG integrated, non-sustainable focused strategies. Now, to validate um, the statement and, and what we're kind of keeping an eye on in terms of performance is looking at a, a few different types of indices that, re- that represent some of these different types of approaches. So, for example, this um, this month for this most recent sustainable investing perspective, we looked in particular at three MSCI sustainable investing indices, uh, one of which is a thematic index that focuses specifically on energy efficiency, um, one, you know, a, a theme that has experienced a lot of growth over the last five years and in particular over the last year, year and a half, but also has seen some pullback. 
um, in, in Q1. We also looked at a more traditional MSCI ESG leaders index, which more closely aims to replicate the, its parent benchmark, the MSCI All Country World Index. Um, as well as to a, a different sustainable and responsible investing index, which more broadly uh, looks to focus on, on sustainability attributes or performance of a company it, it tracks, as well as uh, it employs more exclusion. So looking at these three types of, of indices and three types of the same, uh, you know, collections of, of uh, issuers and, and companies, we note that all were outperforming um, their, their parent benchmark, however, showed different movements over the five-year period, um, and in particular over the last quarter with the um, the the, um, the the energy specific uh, focus index uh, experiencing some some relative pullback while the others staying more consistent and again this it paired again with also looking at these similar indices across industries is pointing to the fact that while over the very short term like if we look at a quarter or even a year or two we, uh, each of these strategies. Uh, perform differently over time. They're still, um, you know, favorable, which is again why we repeat we would repeat our recommendation that sustainable investing continues to be our preferred solutions for clients that are looking to invest globally. Amantia, to that point, as sustainable investing interest has grown worldwide, money managers have had to incorporate ESG factors into their process. So, Alexi, from your experience, how does an asset manager incorporate ESG? into their portfolios and what are some of the key characteristics Alexi that you look for when choosing investments and what benefits do you see manifesting in portfolios? Yeah, thank you Dan it's really my pleasure to be sharing the stage with Amantia today so what she just described so well is, is great news I think in terms of flows and interest we, we should be cheering the fact that people are embracing sustainable investing and money flows are directed towards these strategies people have realized that they they have a choice and they have power. They have a choice because for every asset class, there are sustainable investing options. And really, UBS have done a phenomenal job at sourcing and promoting some of these strategies and making them the default option that needs to be uploaded and is a clear differentiator for, for your plat- platform and your clients. And then clients, people have power because they, they have power to drive change and have an impact, for example, for by providing financing to companies that have better practices and by doing so effectively lowering their cost of funding and allowing them to expand faster than other companies with worse practices. So that can create a virtuous circle in financial markets and more broadly in in society. So how do we do it at GSAM in our fundamental equity business? First of all, what is the objective? First of all, I think it's about values alignment. We want to systematically exclude certain sectors and activities that our clients simply don't want to be associated with. Historically, it's been the case with uh, activities like uh, alcohol and tobacco and weapons, but more and more uh, uh, certain sectors like, like fossil fuels. Then the, more importantly for us as, as fundamental investors is about risks and, and returns. And, and that's ultimately what clients care about. It's, it's about performance. And so risk is about avoiding certain sectors and activities which are potentially at risk, at risk from uh, litigation, 
um, uh, potentially the, the transition, the energy transition, and really trying to avoid the sectors that could be uh, uh, could see substantial loss of value uh, over time. And then it's it's about return and really tilting the portfolios towards companies that benefit from from these changes and from this uh, climate revolution we are experiencing right now. So how how does it translate into practice? Now we we believe that sustainable investing really plays to our strength as fundamental investors. First of all, it's about a, a long-term horizon. Managers churning their portfolios three to five times a year will struggle to see any benefit from focusing on ESG factors. So really, we try to take a three to five year view instead of a three month view. Then it's about being holistic and, and materiality driven, not formulaic and rigid in, in our process. We know that every industry, every company will be different and will have different issues that we need to understand. Then it's about uh, our proprietary process and proprietary ESG assessment. We take a, a forward look more than uh, look at historical data. Historical data is can be interesting, but more importantly, we care about the transformation stories, these companies which are getting better, understanding what they need to do and transforming themselves. And for us, it's really integration. We are fully, we, we fully embed ESG analysis in our investment process, and it is driven by our analysts. Every time they look at a company, they also consider factor. And the result of this is a good balance. And, and Amantia really made the point about style and, and cyclicality of some of these uh, sustainable investing strategies, we, we care deeply about the balance and the portfolio construction. This is not an exercise in picking the most highly rated stocks based on a third-party scoring provider's rating. There are too many uh, ESG funds which have lost sight of the traditional investing principle. It is still about valuation, risk management, and at the end of the day, it is about performance and that that we we know our clients care so much about. Well, thank you, Alexi, for sharing some transparency around your investment participation process and some of the key attributes, characteristics that you look out for. Now, Amantia, to switch gears a bit, I know just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Earth Day, which saw the gathering of global leaders at a climate summit, which has spurred a flurry of net zero commitments. So, Amantia, could you please dig into the details for us of what some of these net zero commitments are, who is making them? and what the implications are here. Of course, and, and um, truly we, we have seen a flurry of net zero commitments and general decarbonization commitments. And to the question who is making them, it seems that um, everyone is. Um, so, so just for some more clarity there, uh, two, two and a half weeks ago was you know, Earth Day as well as, um, you know, so, so during the whole week of Earth Week, really, we saw both governments step up and uh, and make additional commitments or, or clarify and refresh their existing commitments to align with the Paris Climate Agreement and to move towards the common kind of global objective of decarbonization. As well as, uh, interestingly, we're also seeing increased corporate commitments around these goals. So just to speak briefly about the government side of the equation, um, 
The Climate Summit of uh, April 22nd and 23rd was hosted by the U.S. government and it welcomed over 40 global leaders, including all countries uh, of the of the G7, um, as well as really governments uh, from around the world, including the European Union, the representatives of the United Nations, and so forth. During this um, summit, the United States issued its own um, commitment to align with the Paris Agreement, and the U.S. committed to cutting carbon emissions or, or generally greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent of its 2005 baseline by the year 2030, um, which which we think is a, is a very ambitious commitment. And uh, and other countries as well followed suit either on that day or during that week with the UK, for example, committing to a 78 percent reduction from its 1990 base by 2035, um, and the European Union renewing its commitment and, and stating um, a goal of cutting 55% by uh, by 2030 compared to its 1990 base. So really, lot, you know, lots of numbers, lots of percentages thrown out there, but the key headline and the key thing to, to know is that many of these commitments are very ambitious, and they require um, significant transformation across sectors, um, starting with maybe some low-hanging fruit around, you know, the energy industry, but but really uh, we'll have to see collective participation as well as new innovation across multiple different industries for us to be able uh, societally to get to to uh, decarbonization towards the net zero goal by the middle of this century. So on the flip side, as governments are making these commitments and then, you know, hopefully we'll see regulation as well as incentive packages to follow to help them achieve the commitments, companies are also making similar uh, statements. So uh, that same week, we saw over 100 companies, um, you know, join the climate pledge, uh, which is a a, a corporate um, alignment or commitment um, where these 100 and some companies that represent over 1.4 trillion dollars in global revenues and are distributed in 25 different countries have uh, you know claimed and made the commitment to start to regularly reporting on their on their emissions which will start to make it easier for investors to to understand and differentiate among them they also are committing to implementing decarbonization strategies in line with the Paris agreement and uh, as well, and then um, you know they're also looking to invest in carbon offsets to help to meet these commitments for themselves. Now, the whole when we put both of these two sides of the equation, the corporate and the government uh, sides of commitments, we think that this will result in increased um, opportunities for investors who are interested in this area. So, for example, uh, the commitments to greening operations from corporates as well as the, the new Net Zero Banking Alliance that also was launched that same week should, uh, for example, bo- boost the issuance of green and sustainable bonds. So not just benefits on the equity side, but also opportunities created on the fixed income side. Um, we also think that as these companies are better at reporting and becoming transparent and making you know steps ahead uh, in, in managing their emissions and preparing for climate climate change, um, they will position themselves as leaders and potentially benefit uh, both in, in terms of managing these transition risks that, that Alexei was also mentioning earlier, but also in positioning themselves for, for investors who will have more ability to make decisions transparently. One thing that I do want to note is that um, 
it is becoming clear that carbon offsetting will be part of the equation somewhat uh, and, and more in some industries than others to help uh, corporates as well as governments reach these net zero commitments. Um, and that means, you know, purchasing through voluntary or, regula- or regulated markets um, the equivalent of, of carbon um, dioxide offset, basically, that, that the, the company or the industry has to emit for a given year or a given time period. So while this is definitely part of the equation and part of the solution from an investor perspective, we think um, investors should continue to, to keep an eye on this as, as we are as well, since not all carbon offsets in a way are are created equal. They're not all equally supportive um, of these goals and are not all necessarily um, sort of new or, or adding value in terms of reducing the overall global level amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, and all to say, you know, lots of opportunities, but also lots of work in, in the months and years to come for us all to keep an eye on this and see these developments. Well, thank you, Amantia, for expanding on the genesis of these net zero commitments and the scope of governments and entities that have made them. And Alexei, this level of engagement and interest sounds very promising for the sustainable investing world. So, Alexei, how do you see pledges of this scope, scale, as Amantia mentioned, very ambitious in cases? How do you see these pledges impacting decisions made by asset managers? So the, the sustainability revolution is a key investment theme for We've identified it as one of the four megatrends for the next decade alongside digitalization, the future of healthcare, and the millennial consumer. We we truly believe we are on the cusp of a a green revolution that will have the scale of the industrial revolution and the speed of the digital revolution. And the companies that are exposed to this trend of clean tech, environmental solutions providers that really help the world transition – could be very attractive investments. It will impact every sector of the economy, from energy production to transportation, construction, building efficiency, food production, packaging, etc. The drivers behind this revolution were already in place, but they have been really boosted by the COVID health, economic and social crisis. And we, we see three main drivers. is governments, which are using the transition to stimulate the economy, create jobs, and develop critical technologies with a green recovery. It's corporate behavior, which is changing and driven by ESG. Companies are being asked by stakeholders to improve their green credentials, and they are looking for solutions. Look at companies like Facebook and Google, which are the largest buyers of renewable power in the world, for example. Look at Amazon, which has ordered 100,000 electric delivery vans. They are doing that under pressure from all their stakeholders, and that creates opportunities for their suppliers. And then the consumers, thirdly, uh, are really become aware of their environmental footprint, and they are changing their consumption pattern accordingly. Look at the success of plant-based proteins, whether it's meat or milk, for example. So how does it show up in our portfolios? Again, it's not only about renewables. It's about all these themes. And we play it across the market cap spectrum and around the world, from highly innovative startups to well-established businesses which are trying to good opportunities. 
Clearly a lot of impacts and adjustments being felt as some of these trends and themes have been accelerated, especially during the pandemic period. So maybe we can switch now to our final focus topic. And this is actually following up, Amati, up on the topic we've spoken about previously here on the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast. I know last month we discussed a series of regulatory actions taken in both the U.S. as well as the European Union, the EU, and the European European Union has continued its action in the regulatory space. So, Amantia, could you please explain what these new regulations are, what level of impact they can have, and why classification is so important for sustainable investing? Thanks, Dan. It, it's truly very much one of those topics that I believe will keep talking about um, as regulators continue to pay attention to sustainable investing. So the European Union, um, over the course of, of the last couple of years now, really, and, and in particular over the, the last few months, has been um, bringing on to force or adopting new comprehensive packages and measures that um, that, are, that have two broad aims, largely. The first aim of, of all of these packages around sustainable investing and sustainable finance is to help investors um, be better equipped to identify sustainable investment opportunities and, and be better informed in how they're making their decisions. And then it seems that the second goal is to really help to improve the flow of assets and capital towards sustainable activities across the European Union with the goal of, of overall supporting um reaching these decarbonization or, or carbon net zero um, efforts that are set by Europe and the European Commission as well. So in, in April, uh, most recently, they adopted a new package of measures by the, the, uh, the Commission. And the goal of this whole set of packages, as I mentioned, is, is to really accelerate the flow of assets towards these activities. Um, just in summary, at the moment, including these most recent developments, there are at least three sets of measures um, that, that fit in this broad uh, set of standards around sustainable finance and sustainable investing. The first is the European Union Taxonomy uh, Climate Delegated Act specifically, which um, is really a political agreement of, of a specific test, text excuse me, that um, aims to um, to support sustainable investment and to identify clearly what are the specific uh, business activities that that qualify as sustainable, but then asset managers on sort of almost like in a second degree uh, impact can look at and qualify uh, if they want to claim that they're, the funds that they are bringing to market or the products that they are bringing to market to European Union clients are um, are indeed sustainable. A second directive that is in the works and, and has just been drastic as a proposal at the moment is the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. So the goal of this proposal will be to eventually, once it, once adopted and formalized in the next uh, few years, to standardize um, how companies in Europe are reporting. And this will be particularly important when it comes to help asset managers, again, and then investors, in particular, to find the, the right information that they need from corporate issuers to then be able to make these, these judgments in how they're directing their capital. And then finally, the, the third set of, of uh, 
requirements from the EU in this comprehensive package touch directly managers, and this is really what we talked about last month as well, the, the European Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation and associated directives which require asset managers starting um, already now this year to to start categorizing their funds if they are sustainable on whether they're light green or dark green sustainable, as well as to have a baseline of reporting for all of their funds, even if their goals aren't specifically to incorporate sustainability objectives or to drive change and impact towards sustainability objectives. So, you know, with these three three pieces of this legislation package in mind, I think the important thing for for our listeners is to think about the role of the European Union um, as a standard setter and and in a way as, as a set of regulations which will likely continue to have ripple effects around the world because, um, you know, corporates that aren't based in the EU will still likely want to be part of these um, funds that are serving European clients as well as multiple asset managers um, will likely be, even if not in the EU, will be looking over there as well um, in, in setting up their own processes and, and regulations and disclosures. So we think overall this is um, generally continues to be supportive for the goals of an increased disclosure. Uh, it will help investors as well that are looking for ESG leader type companies as well as those companies or those, that type of investment approach is likely to, to benefit as well as we think, you know, thematic investments that are supporting the green themes that are tagged by the EU taxonomy at the moment of sustainable, such as renewable energy or clean air and carbon reduction or energy transition, uh, really multiple themes aligned to the future of Earth that we've discussed um, are likely to be supported as well. So speaking in terms of the European Union, the momentum behind regulatory expansion is clearly evident. So, Alexei, perhaps you can weigh in here, though, in context of investment decision-making from the lens of a money manager. Alexei, how do you see these changes in regulation affecting the decision-making of an asset manager? Yes, sure. I mean, the, the objective of this regulation is to offer transparency, comparability, and ultimately informed choice, which we should all be pleased with, because it will allow advisors to identify which products are suitable for for their clients. Now, effectively, it creates three categories of products, gray, green, and dark green, maybe some different shades in there. But essentially, what it means is that virtually all products will need to have a sustainability angle, because platforms, gatekeepers like yourselves, will exclude products that fall in the gray category, because they won't need them, because there will be enough to choose from in the green and dark green categories. So for us in the, in the fundamental equity business of, of GSAM, it has required very little change to our portfolios beyond the data gathering and admin work, which is uh, huge. But what it means from, a, from an investment point of view and something that we are very focused on is, is risk of uh, too much money going into certain sectors and, and potentially the risk of overvaluation. And so that's something that we uh, keep a, a close eye on. Um, you know, these companies that are going to be considered green uh, will attract uh, money flows by, by default because managers will want to be exposed to them. And hence, we, we really focus on our holistic approach and, and really our valuation discipline and the construction of very balanced portfolios because we don't want to end up in companies which are overvalued. So it's, uh, it's not only about fitting into a box, it's also about giving our clients an attractive return. 
Well, Alexi Amanti, a very productive conversation today. So thank you very much. Appreciate your insights into a whole host of timely developments, performance reflections, as well as outlooks. It was great catching up with you both today on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. As a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located up on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including the May edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication. For clients of UBS, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about today's topics or or receive a copy of the latest Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication directly. Sustainable Investing Perspectives is part of the UBS Conversations podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.